Hello and welcome to the Amplifier Podcast, the show where the best in business discuss how you can grow your business best. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and today our host Don Cooper is joined by a very special guest, Dr. BJ Fogg, for part one of a two-part conversation. Dr. Fogg is the author of Tiny Habits, the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University, and is on the show today to discuss how utilizing smart behavior design can assist an entrepreneur in their day-to-day life by helping to create good habits for them, with part two of this conversation diving deeper into how behavior design can help to reduce bad habits that are likely to harm entrepreneurs and their journeys to success. So definitely make sure you check out our second episode with Dr. Fogg after listening to this one. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any episodes in the future. But with all of that said, I truly do hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. Now, please take it away, Don. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. I've been super excited about recording this episode because I've learned so much from you. And I I really want my audience in my particular space to learn some of the wisdom and the value that you brought from all of your work because... It was massively important, uh, impactful for me learning what you do, and I think in in the B two B space and particularly in the industrial space, there's so much learning that can be applied that can help people be way more successful. Learning your particular specialty in science, so um, I'm super excited. So glad to be here to talk to you. I think we have some really important things to cover today. Hundred yeah. percent. I'm I'm super excited. I mean, I know. I've scratched the surface or maybe dug just below the surface on your work. Um, and I continue, plan to continue to, to, uh, to uh, tap into your genius <laughs> as I try to learn more. But, you know, for my audience, for our listeners, I want them to get a sample of the, this mystery of, of behavior design. And then it's not, um, you know, it, it isn't a mystical art. There is, there is a formula and there is a system how you can create meaningful change in your life, in your businesses, and for your teams, for your clients. So, BJ, just for, for everyone's sake, tell the audience who you are and like how did you get focused on this kind of work? Well, I'll be brave, Don. You can have me go deeper. More, um, I split my time between doing academic research and teaching at Stanford and then doing work in industry. And mostly I train and teach. So I have a real practical component uh, to what I do. And I have, yeah, since the mid to early 90s. And then I also love doing research and I love teaching. So I live in both worlds. How did I get here? Oh, I've just long been interested in human behavior and how to optimize it, starting as a, a a boy growing up in the Mormon culture, which a lot is about um, optimizing your behavior and uh, following commandments and things like that. Um, And it's just really been interesting to me. Um, And so even though I was humanities guy, and then I was a linguistics guy and a rhetoric, and then became a social scientist, where now I'm a quantitative researcher where I use true experiments as my primary method to investigate how human behavior really works. And a lot of that lately, as you suggested, Don, is about habits and helping people create habits. And there's been breakthroughs that I'm happy to share in that domain. Um, But it's not just habits, it's all types of human behavior you can understand and design for systematically. You don't have to guess. 
Yeah. You know, and that's, as you can tell, I'm super excited about this and I have been ever since I learned about your work. So tell me about um, the fog behavior model and the basis for how you can start to do all of these things. Yes. So there is this model, uh, Don, you know this, but everybody listening, there is this model that led to all the other breakthroughs. And I, I call it the fog behavior model. So I put my name on it, my brand on it. And it's, um, it's like an answer to a riddle where, you know, before you know the answer, it's like human behavior can seem really confusing, but after you hear it, it's straightforward and it's simpler than, and this came to me in the final puzzle piece came together for me in 2007. It goes like this. Behavior happens when three things come together. Motivation for that behavior, ability to do that behavior, and a prompt. And that's it. And that describes all behavior types, including habits. Habits are a subset of the broader category of behavior. So whenever you're looking at any behavior type, either getting it to happen or getting it to stop, it will always come down to motivation, ability, and prompt. And with that uh, cornerstone model, um, since 2007, I've developed other models and other methods that build on that in a way that couldn't be done before because this puzzle around human behavior hadn't been solved before. And once it gets solved, then you could do things um, both in terms of analysis and design that just couldn't be done before. And that, that behavior model became the foundation for what my broader work, which I now call behavior design. So tell us about each of those components and how that, you know, yeah. what's the magic formula for those things to come together where, you know, how do, how do those three things make me do something? Well, let's, uh, so I write it out as B equals M A P. Now it's not an equation like you could do algebra with or math with. Um, I, it's a model, but I write it out that way. So first of all, the B, the behavior, B stands for behavior. It needs to be something specific. It's not an abstraction like save more money or get our workers to be safer. It's a specific behavior like wear a hard hat when you enter this area or write a thank you note as soon as you get home after a party. That's a specific behavior. Motivation, so B equals M, motivation is what it sounds like. Now I have a model and a framework for, for motivation, so I further define it. But for most purposes, you can just think of motivation in the same way we think of it every day. Next is A is ability, which is your capacity to do something or hard it is to do a behavior, whether it's wear a hard hat or write a thank you note. And then P is the prompt. Uh, that's the reminder. I used to call it trigger, but I changed it to prompt. It's anything that says do this now. And we have prompts all around us. We've got notifications. My phone just rang for a second a few minutes ago. That was a prompt to answer it, which I'm not motivated to do because I'm talking to you, Don. And I'm not, I guess I'm able to do it, but I don't have motivation. So even though my phone rang, that was a prompt. I guess I was able to do it, but my motivation to answer the phone in this moment is zero. So that means the behavior of answering the phone did not happen. So if any of those elements, motivation, ability, or prompt is zero, like it's not happening, like you don't have motivation or you don't have ability, or there's not a prompt, then the behavior doesn't happen. So each of those components, how, how do you 
start to design around using that idea? Like, and what are the things yeah. you need to consider? Whoa, okay, I'll be brief. You can go deeper if you want. First of all, figure out what is the behavior that you want yourself or your employees to do. So define the behavior. And again, it can't just be an abstraction like be safer or follow our guidelines. It needs to be, be very specific. Define the behavior carefully. And ideally, you want to match people with behaviors they already want to do. All right. So the motivation, ideally, is part of matching them with the behavior. Uh, it's easy to give an example like in the exercise space. If somebody doesn't want to go running around their neighborhood, then don't pick that behavior for yourself or for others. Pick an exercise behavior that you want to do. That might be rowing, surfing, uh, swimming, whatever. So um, ideally, and in behavior design, what you try to do is match people with behaviors they already want to do. So the motivation already comes along with the behavior. Now there's time that doesn't happen and we can get to that in a minute, but let me go to the next component. So once you know what the behavior is, let's say it's writing a thank you note as soon as you get home after a dinner party. That's the behavior. And you want to do that because you want to be grateful. So that's, but then you need to make it easy to do. That's the ability component. So how do you make it easy to do? You probably for sure have some thank you notes ready to go. Like if they're still at the store, it's hard to do. Um, you might pre-address the envelope even before you go to the dinner party. Go pre-address the envelope, put the stamp on, have the thank you notes sitting out on your kitchen table or your desk. So as soon as you get home, all you have to do is write in the note, put it in the envelope and you're done. So that would be increasing your ability, making it easy to do. And the third thing is prompt. What's gonna remind you? In the case of the thank you note, just leaving the note out on the kitchen table could be a good reminder. Uh, there's other ways to remind yourself to do stuff. And we do this all the time. We send ourselves emails, we put it on our to-do list, we tell somebody else to remind us, et cetera. Um, so, in behavior design, ideally what you're doing is matching somebody with a specific behavior they want to do, that's motivation. You're making it really easy and you're making sure there's a prompt. And if you do all those things, the behavior will reliably happen. You have this model in behavior design where, and you call it the pack person, where you've got these three different components of how each of motivation, ability, and prompt happen. Because sometimes the person doesn't want to do it. It's not, that's not the right motivator. So what are the other, what does PACT mean? And how does that apply to how you can create, you know, design a behavior in different ways based on understanding those components? I will answer this, but first of all, geek alert everybody. We're going to geek out into another model. <laughs> into another model, but it's practical. It truly is practical. And it's, I've, this model is so important that it's on the little notebooks for behavior design. And it's on when there's boot camp, when we run a training in this, the catering team has this model on their coats and on their hats, and we have it on the napkins. <laughs> so the pack person model is the person, the action, and the context. So there's three parts of the model, person, action, context. So when you look at motivation or ability or prompt, those can come from the person or the action or the context. And let's just drill down on motivation. Um, motivation can come from the person himself or herself. 
like, oh my gosh, I really want to be a grateful person or I really want to do safe behaviors. The, um, so that would come from inside the person. So PAC stands for person, action, context. So let's go to the next one, action. Um, if the person doesn't already want to do the behavior, yes, there are ways to motivate them by attaching a benefit or a punishment to the action. Uh, carrots and sticks, people are very familiar with this. It's not the best way to motivate somebody. The best way is to pick something they already want. But there are times when people don't already want to do something like uh, file an expense report within seven days. Nobody loves that. But the penalty for that might be if you don't get it done within seven days, you don't get reimbursed. So that's attaching a punishment to the action, or sometimes it's a benefit for the action. If you do, uh, if you show up early to this meeting, we're gonna give you some chocolate, right? That's motivating them to that. The third one is the context. Um, there can be motivation that happens in our context. Right now, in the time of COVID, our context has changed and we are unusually motivated to wear masks or to socially distance or so on. That's a function of the context. Um, when other people are doing things around us, oh, everybody's wearing short pants, or everybody's wearing long pants, or I think everybody's gonna wear a tie to the wedding. That will, no, no, I certainly don't want to wear a tie. However, if I think everybody's wearing a tie to a wedding, that's a contextual motivator because we don't wanna look stupid or bad or um, be ostracized from people in our context. So when it comes to motivation, it will always fit in one of those categories. Either it's kind of intrinsic to the person or it's attached to the action, carrot stick, or it's this motivation that happens in a context. Now the context motivation can be fleeting. Uh, it goes up and down. And once we're in a different context, that motivator can go away. So it, it's different than the other two. But when you look at anything that motivates you or other people, it will always be one of those three things or a combination of those three things. And so ability and prompt have those same. same thing. Of, yeah. So potential, potential uses. Yeah. Okay. I'll be faster on this one. But uh, for, to increase ability, you can change the person. So I'm going to go PAC again. You change the person by skilling them up or training them. So if somebody is more skilled in, uh, let's say, uh, cleaning the bathroom, <laughs> you teach your teenager, you skill. It's a great one. I've got an 18-year-old that is the bane of my wife's existence right now about not doing just that. So that's okay. That's, we'll, we'll keep going with cleaning the bathroom. Very important. So when somebody skills up, it gets easier to do. You can make it easier by scaling back the action. And that would be, oh, we don't, you don't have to clean the whole bathroom, just wipe out the sink or just clean the mirror. So that's taking the action and scaling it back so it's easier to do. And the third one is about the context. You can put the tools or resources in the context. Here's the cleaner, here's the sponge, here's the toilet brush. And by giving people tools and resources, you make it easier. And we do this all the time in business, right? We want you to do X, Y, Z, here's a tool for doing it. What you're doing with that is you're making it easier to do by putting something in somebody's context or you're bringing something into your context. For example, different example, not clean the bathroom. I wanna drink more water. Bam, I have water sitting on my desk. So by design, I did, you do too. So by design, what we've done is we've changed our context by putting a tool or a resource we need, the water, 
to make it easier to do. And the third one is prompt. So the person can just prompt himself or herself like, oh, I need to clean the bathroom. That's not a good way to design, but it happens. The prompt can be attached to an action they already do. Like after I come home from soccer practice, I will clean the bathroom. So arriving home from soccer becomes the prompt for cleaning the bathroom. Or the prompt can come from the context. You could put a sign on your son's door like, hey, don't forget to clean the bathroom. So that's a contextual prompt. Maybe not very welcome, but it's an example of a context prompt. And I, I love that action prompt, what, what you call an anchor prompt. I, yeah. To me, that one was so intuitive for me to use it that I've applied it to so many areas in my life to go, hey, I mean, and I told you this story before, um, you know, I, I had about $1,500 worth of vet bills for my dog because he was having dental issues. He was losing teeth. His mouth was always getting sore. We tried dental treats and, you know, all sorts of things that didn't work. And finally, the, you know, the dentist said, you know, you just got to brush your dog's teeth. And I'm like, brush my dog's teeth. I'm like, that seems, I, you know, I've had dogs my whole life and I've never brushed the dog's teeth. Like, what's the story here? But long story short, I didn't want him to be in pain. I was motivated. Right. Yeah. I also did. I was also motivated because I didn't want $700 vet bills. Um, yeah. And uh, but, you know, and I had, you know, the ability was I had the, I had all the tools I had. Then we bought the toothpaste and all this stuff. And my wife did. I, I was still somewhat like this seems peculiar to me, but OK. Um, and but I wasn't doing and, it. And did you look up videos? So your ability you probably also skilled up. Right. Uh, no, you know what? No, I'm a quick start. So I kind of just oh said, oh, I, know, I know how to brush my teeth. I'm going to figure out. I, I mean, the, the vet gave me some tips and instructions. Okay, I remember that. So there was there was some uh, there was a little bit of training by the vet. Um, but I recognized I wasn't doing it. And, you know, when we started talking about anchor prompts, I, I look, well, I want to do it. I have the tools. But what's missing? And I instantly went, well, two things, two things were wrong. Why the behavior wasn't happening. One my wife had taken the toothpaste and the dog toothbrushes and stuff and I put it in a Ziploc bag and put it underneath the vanity in the bathroom. So it was out of sight for context wise, it was no longer immediately available. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a prompt. I wasn't remembering and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have an anchor prompt or a contextual prompt. And it wasn't your dog's bad breath that would remind you. It was reminding me, it was reminding me at like 10 o'clock when he jumps on the bed and was trying to lick my face. Right. So you're and just so well, once we had gone through this work, I went, okay, what's missing? Like I could instantly diagnose the situation and go, what is missing? And I identified there's two things wrong with my formula. One was from a context point of view, my ability was sort of limited because I needed to put the toothpaste and the toothbrush in a cup on the kitchen, uh, on the bathroom vanity. So he had his own place right next to my daughter's tools. And then I thought, okay, what's my prompt going to be? Well, every morning I was already helping Abby brush her teeth. She'd say, dad, can you come help me? Cause I'd have to open up her toothpaste or open up her mouthwash. Yeah. And, and so I went, this is perfect. When yeah. Abby asked me for help, I'm going to put the dog's, you know, uh, materials right next to hers in his own cup. When she says, come help me, I go in and I call the dog and I help her. And then I brush his teeth and no more vet bills. <laughs> well, no more vet Don, bills. That's a wonderful example. I mean, and so in the tiny habits world, the recipe would be this. 
after I help Abby brush her teeth, I will brush my dog's teeth. So, right. so you use an existing action, helping Abby to be the reminder or the prompt, tech, the technical term is the prompt to brush your dog's teeth. That's a great, that's a great yeah. example. I've never heard that example before. Congratulations. Yeah. And so it, and it works and, and, but you know, I'm, 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 I, it, behavior design in practice is a practice because literally nine minutes ago, I came from the dentist <laughs> and, wow. and I got a bad report on my flossing BJ. Um, oh, no. And yeah. So, you know, no major problems in there, but they said, you know, you're going to have some, if you don't start upping your flossing practice. And I have a, I have the tools. I, I have a water pick flosser and I'm motivated to do it but I hadn't created the habit of, you know, just doing it. So I need to just use an anchor, which is yeah. when, after I brush my teeth, I'm going to use the water pick right away. And just, yeah. and so I made a and I made a commitment to my hygienist who's listening. Cause I told her all about behavior design and she was criticizing me uh, about my, my, uh, my uh, flossing. And so I made a commitment. I'm going to, and I, inst as soon as we were talking about it, I know I could, it was funny. I know exactly what I got to do. I have, I have the motivation. I have the ability. I'm lacking a prompt. I need to just start putting this on an anchor prompt. But when I brush my teeth, I use the water pick and, and I know I'm going to do it because it just sort of instantly clicked with me how to diagnose the issue to change that behavior quickly. Right. There are broader implications of how you can use these concepts in improving lots of your life, improving your own personal performance in your work when, um, and in designing things, new products, new processes, all sorts of things in business. Um, yeah. how, how do you stack these things together to make more complex things happen? Yeah. Um, behaviors tend to happen in sequences. So there's a behavior model for each behavior. And one behavior can prompt the next. It's like brushing completion of brushing will prompt the next and so on. So that's one way that we can, we chain behave, behaviors together where we get a routine, thing after thing, after thing, after thing. And many of us have morning routines where one thing leads to another. And I would guess many of us are revising and optimizing our morning routine kind of a lot, depending on change of circumstance or change of needs. That's one way. Another way, is as you do a behavior and you feel successful doing it. I'll give kind of an odd example for most people. Um, let's say that you arrange flowers and you feel successful doing it. Then you might start thinking to yourself, I'm the kind of person who arranges flowers and can arrange flowers, which is actually true for my life. I didn't feel that way, but now I probably have seven flower bouquets around the house <laughs> and it's a weekly habit and it's a daily um, habit to either water or trim or my flowers. So change leads to change. If you feel successful, it could be tidiness, it could be gratitude, it could be exercise, it could be aspects of productivity. So the key there is to help somebody do a behavior and feel successful, which then shifts how they think about themselves. I'm the kind of person who finishes projects on time, or I'm the kind of person who communicates to my colleagues. And then when they have that emerging identity, the new identity, then it's natural for that person to do other related behaviors within that domain, whether it's communication or productivity or tidiness or even flowers.
feeling successful was something about learning this with you that I really loved. And you have an interesting, but really fun way of celebrating to create that emotional bond with a new thing. What, what, what is that? And, and, and how does that work? Yeah. The key everybody is, well, I'll say three words and I'll unpack it. Emotions create habits. So if you want to create a habit in yourself or others, you're designing for emotions. So if you do a behavior and you feel successful, like, oh my gosh, that worked, or that got me, that moved me forward in a way that matters. It's that feeling, that recognition that makes that behavior more automatic. It's not repetition that creates habits. It's not incentives that create habits. It's the emotion that you feel. Um, I don't have to do it 30 times in a row and, or 60 yeah, days or 21 no, days. No. Or... I mean, let me give a, a, a quick example. Um, I would say five or six years ago when I was wearing my, when I was using my iPhone, I was using the wired headset. And then one day I bought the earpods that are wireless and I put them in and I used them. It was like, oh my gosh, this gives me a superpower. I'm more successful using this because I'm not getting the cord tangled up and so on. I didn't have to repeat that behavior many times. It was a one and done. As soon as I used the earpods, the corded one just went in the drawer only for emergencies. Right. So that's an example of here's this new habit that many people created without trying very hard, without repeating it over and over. If it if it helps you feel successful in a clear and dramatic way the first time you do it, it can substantially wire in as a new habit in your life. So that's really what you're designing for is the feeling of success. Now, sometimes it happens naturally with like a product that's so much better than the previous product, but you can also hack that emotion. In the Tiny Habits, we call that hacking. Uh, we call it a celebration. And each person, there's different ways to celebrate. You can just say, good for me. You can uh, raise your arms and go like Olympians would, like, um, you could uh, think about your purpose and how this productivity behavior helps you achieve your purpose or the gratitude behavior helps you. Whatever causes you to feel successful, you can hack that emotion and do it in the moment. So your brain can associate the thank you note or the wearing the hard hat or the wiping off the bathroom mirror with a positive emotion. And that's how you accelerate the speed of habit formation. I was amazed learning that. I mean, it, 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 it seems so obvious, but it's not obvious in practice. But when you do it intentionally to hack that habit by creating that celebration after you do that behavior, it, it, it's like you get this hit of dopamine and you go, you know, within two, one time, two times, three times, all of a sudden it just feels so natural that it's almost like you are speeding up the habit formation in a way that was really interesting for me. And I think anyone who learns that little, that little trick, which I think it's a little trick, but it's, it's, a, it's got, it's got, it's got big arms <laughs> um, in terms yeah. of its it, it does give you an amazing ability to form habits quickly and easily. Like if you can cause yourself to feel positive emotion on demand, and some people can do this naturally and some people have a really hard time. Most people are in the middle. 
they can learn to do it, they can get better at it. But that ability to fire off that positive emotion is essentially directly related with your ability to create habits quickly. And I call that emotion, that feeling of success, I'd name that shine. So shine is the name I've given to the emotion when you feel successful, because there wasn't a good word in English or any other language for it. So really get good at feeling shine or helping other people feel shine. Then you get really good at creating habits in yourself or in other people. I just, I just got a reminder of something there because I was so, I had such great experiences using that myself that, and I was just reading something on, on neural science around, around reinforcement. And I, and I, and you said helping other people feel shine, like literally if you're a supervisor, manager, partner, you can, when you recognize that someone else has started a new habit that you can, you can give them that same hit um, in a, you know, to feel successful, um, and, you know, what, what, what a great thing. Give a really, Don, let me give a really common example. And, and once people see the pattern, you're going to see it everywhere. Uh, let's say in my Stanford class, I have a student who's quite shy and she doesn't speak up very much. But one day she asks a question. What I'm going to do is give her the most positive, true comment. I can see a better question. Uh, so I might say, um, Rosa. That's a really insightful question. Thank you for asking it, right? And so by reinforcing her and calling out how she succeeded, she's much more likely to ask questions in the future. And after I do that a few times, it might be, wow, Rose, so that is, that question demonstrates that you're really pulling together aspects of the material. Let me try to answer that for you. Imagine I do that two or three times. Rose is going to increase the frequency of questions in my class. Now we see this with kids and with our dogs and with even customers that come into a store kind of thing. So just recognize this pattern that it is the feeling of success, whether you hack it in your own self or you give other people that feeling of shine, that's what makes that behavior more likely to occur in the future. And there you have it. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about or get in touch with either Dr. BJ Fogg or our host, Don Cooper, then you can do so at any time by following their links in the description of this episode. Make sure you leave us a five-star rating. It truly does help out the show a lot. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. But with all that said, I truly do hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Amplifier Podcast, and we cannot wait to see you here next time.